The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM and you may be listening to us on 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor as I understand we are going on and off the air right now. Mostly we'll be streaming at WERU.org for a while because we are having some work done on our tower. We've got Talk of the Towns with your host Ron Beard coming up next. Stay tuned for that. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And this morning, um, even if we're um, on and off the air, we're still broadcasting uh, by the web and uh, glad to have some folks in the studio who can help us with the topic, Maine as Muse, Highlights from the History of Maine. Um, a couple of uh, uh, shows ago, we, we talked about uh, Maine as Muse for the creative side, and uh, now we'll be kind of delving into Maine's um, wonderful history. And in the studio with us, we have Tim Garrity, who's executive director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Welcome back to Talk of the Towns, Tim. Thanks, Ron. Get right close to that microphone. Um, and Nancy Alexander. Nancy is from Islesboro. Um, her UM doctoral thesis is Keeping House, Hidden Economy in Maine Coastal Women, of Maine Coastal Women, 1850 to 1900. Welcome to you, Nancy. Thanks, Ron. Glad both of you can be with us. Um, we may get a chance to talk with uh, John Gillis, who's out on Gotts Island. He's a professor of, of history emeritus, professor of history at Rutgers, and, and has written a, a wonderful book about coasts. And uh, we'll see if we can't get uh, in touch with him as well. Yeah. So um, each of you, um, uh, perhaps starting with Tim, um, what is it about history that, that got you um, connected? Do you remember um, when history became important to you? I think I uh, have been interested in history since childhood. I recall uh, the April, 18, uh, April 1961 issue of National Geographic had a woodcut of uh, the Battle of uh, Big Bethel. Uh, and like many people of my that era, I uh, found myself fascinated by the imagery in here, almost walked, uh, dog-eared that April 1961 issue of National Geographic till it was worn out. I, I know my mother was very pleased that I was interested in a, a toy like that, but I was eight years old at the time. And uh-huh. I, I think ever since, I've always been drawn towards history as what I really wanted to read when I was reading whatever I wanted, and uh, when I've, um, in, in the role that I'm in now as executive director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, I find it endlessly fascinating to start to pull together all the sources to create a coherent story about our uh, the past that's all around us. Mm. And Nancy, how about you? How how did you get interested in history? Were you always always interested? I was. Uh, my grandfather, when I was seven, gave me a book called one of the Orange Landmark books. I don't know. You have to be of a certain age <laughs> to remember those, but it was Nancy Hanks and. I went upstairs with my new book and came down three hours later and said, do you have another one? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then in high school, I had an absolutely superb history teacher. I went to Deering High School in Portland, Maine. Her name was Elizabeth Ring, and she has a long and proud history history in the state of Maine. The name is recognized throughout the state. And then um, I went on to college and majored in botany, which had nothing to do with history at all. But in my 50s, I had run out of entertainments, and my husband said, well, what is it that you read? What is it that you like? And I thought about that and found that it was history. So Mm. I went back to the University of Maine and got my master's and then my PhD Mm. in American history. Mm. And so um, how do you keep that up now? Um, What what outlets do you have given that, that research? 
Um, it's been very interesting. When I was doing the research, I had, or beginning the process of becoming a historian, I had no idea what I was seeking. I actually started out wanting to be a maritime historian, but when I got to the university, the maritime historian on the uh, faculty retired that year. Uh. So that closed that door a little bit. I found myself drawn into a local story, a local history um, that revealed itself in letters that I discovered at the University of Maine. And that began my history career. And those letters led me through my master's and through my PhD and then into sort of a micro history concentrating on uh, women in Penobscot Bay. Mm. And Tim, you have a similar um, story in terms of, of history. It wasn't your profession, um, but you decided to make it so. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I was a healthcare executive for 25 years. It came to a point where I wanted to do something else with the rest of my life and had a conversation with my spouse. And uh, she helped me realize or say out loud that what I really loved was was history. So I also enrolled in the graduate program at the University of Maine. I worked for a summer as a park ranger in Acadia National Park. A lot of my focus was on the history of Acadia. And I encountered a uh, gravestone in the Wasgott Cemetery on Beach Hill Road in Mount Desert. And the gravestone was very intriguing. The inscription said, John Gilly, Company D, 1st Maine Cavalry, fell at the Battle of the Wilderness, May 5th, 1864. And I thought there was almost a life story in that, mm -hmm. and I investigated to discover that it wasn't true, that he didn't fall at the Battle of the Wilderness, that his unit had never fought there, that another, uh, he, had, he had died a few days later, but he was alive and well on May 5th. And uh, began to explore that history, and that led me to some of his companions, and to start to piece together what happened to the community of Mount Desert during the Civil War. Mm. So that now far, I... Far from the battlefield, but very much present in people's lives. Just a tremendous impact on uh, men and women of the community, though it was a thousand miles from the battlefield. There was a, a, it was a very traumatic time. Mm. Mm. I've asked each of you to, to uh, bring something to, to read. Um, you ready to, to, to try that? Sure. Maybe we'll start with, with Tim and then go to Nancy. Um, something that, that, uh, that you've written that um, begins to tell a story. So, Tim, would you like to start? Sure, thanks. The uh, story I have was published in the Historical Society's annual magazine, Chabaco. It's a magazine of uh, local history, draws from a lot of sources, and uh, Chabaco, that odd name, stands for the kind of boat that was first used by the pioneers to settle the island for Chabaco Parish in Massachusetts, the place where that boat came from. And the title of my article is called Far From Home, the Spring of 1864. And I'll uh, just read a, a few uh, lines from the beginning. Like a monstrous storm full of destructive energy gathered offshore. The Civil War broke down upon Mount Desert Island suddenly and with great force, a giant wave that breached the shoreline and covered the landscape to its highest point, taking up young men in its torrent and delivering them by different currents to their fates. The winds of war blew hardest in their third year in the spring of 1864, when all who could be enlisted were fully exposed to the sustained violence of the overland campaign, an unrelenting surge of military power intended to finally bring the war to an end. When the war started in the spring of 1861, Augustus Chase Savage was 29, James M. Parker was 20, and Thaddeus S. Soames was 22. They were among the scores of youths from the town of Mount Desert who suddenly became valuable commodities for an army hungry for soldiers to fill its ranks. They were enticed with enlistment bonuses and the promise of steady pay, patriotic appeals and the lure of adventure, or at the very least, a change of scene. They were prodded by newspaper editorials, rallies, speeches, sermons, and flag raisings, and eyed with suspicion if they walked the roads in civilian clothes. They followed the urging of boyhood friends and the particular influence of young women. They enlisted together boyhood friends who grew up in the same town. 
a veteran recalled that they had sailed the same coasters, fished in the same smacks, cut their initials side by side, deep in the same schoolhouse desk, and together been switched, therefore. Serving together in the same companies and regiments, they would share barracks and tent, dusty road and mud-filled rifle pit, enduring common hardships and danger side by side. They fought, as historian James McPherson put it, for cause and for comrades. Mm. Very rich, and, and drawing on Mount Desert Island's maritime history as, as, the, as the beginning um, to that. Um, so in, in, that, in that, the beginning of that story, um, you're talking about um, what led people to war. I assume that then you deal with what, what actually happened to some of those folks. Well, this becomes a work of collective biography. As we're trying to understand and put a larger picture together, I'm taking a lot of pieces, the lives of individuals. And as part of a larger work, this explores the experience of women, of dissidents, people who opposed the war, people who uh, served in the infantry, uh, heavy artillery guarding forces, uh, fortresses that were supposed to be safe jobs, or in the Navy, and um, starts to draw a picture of what became of this community. We understand our community today as collections of individuals, and uh, by exploring the resources from the 1860s, we can start to understand a picture of this same collection of individuals 150 years ago. Mm. So and that shaped, shaped by events, not just by their own lives. It seems like yeah, that's the... Yeah, and that's, a, that's an important part of it, too, is, uh, you know, I compose some of these first lines, like a di monstrous storm gathering energy mm. offshore in uh, February 2013, when uh, winter storm Nemo was mm. coming down. And it struck me that th the Civil War was, in a way, expected but nobody anticipated the power of its impact so that everyone had to make choices, but all the choices were forced. There was no escaping the effect of the war. It came over and it came upon the island and took over people's lives and swept them in all different directions that they could never have anticipated. Mm, mm. Well, let's go to Nancy. Nancy, you were covering some of the same um, time period in your work in terms of women in Penobscot Bay. Absolutely. But I have to say, Tim, that is such a wonderful opening for a discussion um, that will follow in your article. Um, and the effects on Islesboro were um, quite similar in some respects, but remarkably different in others. So we'll discuss it later. Great. What I did was study the nature of women's work around Penobscot Bay, um, particularly in this article that appeared in Maine History, the Maine Historical Society's publication. Um, it is for Islesboro and Vinyl Haven, and it's about the netting industry, um, which some people named knitting, but it's making fishing nets started out that way. However, um, it became a very important part of the economy, and what I have chosen to read here is uh, what happened at the end of the 19th century when the communities were under terrible, terrible stress um, in the Bay, and population was falling rapidly, and opportunities lost. Um, began to catch up with people, that, that there was nothing to keep people employed or financially healthy. When communities undergo stress, their local institutions take on increased importance. On Islesboro, the Baptist Church Sewing Circle, located at the southern end of the island, provided a forum in which women socialized, shared their news, and kept in touch with their community. Work for the Circle benefited the church and the island as a whole, providing charitable support for indigent families and for island-wide projects. Since netting was a multi-generational activity shared widely across the island, it was common for women to join afternoon netting groups as well after daily chores were completed. Netting stands were easily carried from one place to another, and they could accommodate four netters each. This sociability was an important source of community stability 
at a time when economic and social stresses were impinging on island families. As community members left for the mainland, those who stayed behind found these informal gatherings an important means of sharing feelings and negotiating changes. In the end, however, island netting and island women were not could not hold the community together in the old way. Despite the growing summer community, limited year-round employment opportunities, and lack of diversity in the local economy made remaining on Islesboro difficult for most people. Both men and women continued to depart the island in large numbers, and in the early 20th century, only about 350 people remained, down from its peak of 1,260 in 1860. In 2013, the population has rebounded to about 600 people. Mm -hmm. Again, waves of change in your case, in Islesboro's case, the islands of Penobscot County, not bridged islands, and as Mount Desert Island soon came to be, but um, islands that were uh, buffeted by economics. Absolutely. Mm. Mm. And I have this whole <laughs> thing about um, the value of tradition but the price you pay for it. Mm. And I think in many cases, the islands could live a life of sameness from their origins much longer than places on the mainland. mainland. And uh, because of that, they suddenly looked up one day and sailing vessels were powered and had steel hulls. There was a, on Islesboro, there was a fleet uh, the Pendleton Brothers fleet originated from Islesboro, and it was the largest fleet under the American flag at one time. It had more shipping vessels than any other in the country, but they never switched to steam power. Hmm. And and that was just an an example. It had moved to New York by that time, but it, that's just an example of... Uh, the lack of forward thinking and innovation. They just, and so all their captains, all their crew people were out of work. Mm. So life in a, in a kind of a bubble, is that how you see yes. it? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And, it, and it was um, secure and safe, mm -hmm. um, but it had no very bad economics at always. It was always subsistence. Mm. And... Um, it finally caught up with them. Mm. What what had driven people to, to settle on the offshore islands? Was it because they were then closer to the fishing grounds? No. In this case, it wasn't. Um, for Islesboro and for many of the Penobscot Bay Islands, it was safety. For, um, before 1763, it was safety uh, because the neither the Native Americans nor the British nor the French, whoever was in charge of casting at any given moment, um, could get you as easily, and you could see them approaching. Right. Um, after 1763 and the end of the French and Indian War, finally we knew who controlled Castine, or was supposed to, and that was the Britain, British. And since we were British, that was great. So at that time, the islands filled up with people. Mm. And um, it was good fishing. It was very mediocre uh, farmland. Um, and there was shipping. Mm -hmm. And, the, of course, lumber just poured out of the Penobscot and Kennebec and the Union River here in uh, Ellsworth. Yeah, right. And, Tim, what, what um, led people um, like Soames and Richardson to come to m the, the island of Mount Desert? Was it similar kinds of, of uh, economic uh, situations or well, safety like, issues? Like Nancy explained, um, we often think of the American expansion as moving west, mm -hmm. but there was an important crossroads early in the 18, uh, 1760s where this eastern frontier opened up, and uh, it was a generation of young men from Gloucester who began to feel like they had run out of their father's land. You know, they, they, they couldn't mm -hmm. inherit uh, increasingly divided land. And there were opportunities here, and the victory of the uh, British over the French at, at the conclu conclusion of the French and Indian War made it possible to start to invest capital 
capital of time and labor and money into uh, parcels of land, and they would be able to reap the rewards. That they, they had a sense that eventually they'd be able to get secure titles to that mm-hmm. land mm-hmm. and not risk losing it. So uh, a place like uh, Mount Desert Island uh, presented probably the best opportunity at the time for uh, a homestead. And Soames and Richardson settled at the head of Soames Sound, a fjord-like body of water uh, five miles inland within the island, so deeply sheltered, and uh, a very deep harbor so that a ship of any draft can come very close to the shore and be loaded with uh, lumber, for instance, at the time. And also another factor, which is true all along the main coast, but is especially true at the head of Somme Sound, is the presence of freshwater streams that, uh, you know, these days you see somebody in the airport and everybody's trying to plug in their iPhone. Uh, <laughs> now, you in the eight, 1760s, everybody was trying to plug into a source of water power. And you have Somme Stream, which became the site of four uh, or se- up to seven mills at one point an inexhaustible supply of water that flowed all year round, uh, even in the deepest droughts, so that uh, it became a place where you had access to salt water, access to fresh water and flowing fresh water and power, and then an inexhaustible supply of lumber, which could be used for shipbuilding, house building, and traded for other supplies and the products of, of of mills. Also, the, the location of these main islands were the equivalent of Route 95 today. The, yes. the roads were horrible or non-existent. You know, the many roads that we count on today just didn't exist even the, in the most primitive state. So it was certainly easier to move goods by, by ship. Right. So how do you do your research? Um, Nancy, um, tell us a little bit about your the process of kind of gathering information, and historians would probably call this primary research. Um, it's it's the, as close to the source as you can get without actually talking to the person who is long gone, unfortunately. Well, uh, I have two wonderful examples. One was uh, from the University of Maine Special Collections in the the Fogler Library. A friend of mine took me there my third day at graduate school and said, go go look up something that's of interest to you while I do what I'm going to do. Um, And I looked up Islesboro in the card file. Um, They were not digitized. I'm not sure they're digitized yet. Um, And it said, Dear Ambrose Letters, six. So I asked for those letters, and they were delivered to me. It turned out that there were 30 of them. And um, I read through those and became quite enamored of those and uh, was able to copy them and transcribe them and then do research around them. And they were between a young woman, 17, and her boyfriend, 20. And we only learn from them when he is away because... It's, it's like reading a negative of a right, photograph. Right. Uh, but what kind of news travels and how. And then I had the fun of taking that information, contextualizing it, what was going on in the town, in the state, in the region, and in the nation at the time. So you got that from newspaper accounts? Or newspaper what? accounts, um, death records, uh, genealogy, um, Wonderful secondary sources um, about, you know, the women's movement and um, Alan Taylor's book about liberty men and the great proprietors and just so many. (laughs) My bibliography was quite long. Um, The other thing was for this netting article, um, I happened to find in the Islesboro Historical Society uh, records from a, a netting agent who put out twine to women and men on the island to make these nets. And um, I also found reference to another uh, ledger that had to do with netting. Apparently this ledger had been discovered on the old dump. Somebody had been going through things on the dump, saved it, and brought it to the Islesboro Historical Society. And this one year where everybody who is knitting or netting on the island um, from these two people are represented. So I could find out how much they were earning, what they were making, and what their name was, Mm. which was great. 
And I could then, from that, figure out the value of um, that income that these women were earning to the family's well-being. And then I went to primary sources of newspapers to find out what they could buy for the money that they had earned. And it was extraordinary. Mm. It was wonderful. Mm. So that made a nice round story about the value of this part-time outwork that sort of held the fa- held the family and the community together because it just took up the slack in the uh, in the economic cash picture. Mm. And what would the what the, uh, would other family members have been doing? Fishing and farming is that primarily farming, fishing, and shipping. Okay. But not they don't. The number of fishermen who reported themselves as fishermen in the uh, census is mm. quite low. Right. Because this was kind of, this is how they got extra um, food. And it was seasonal. And it was very seasonal. So um, they would uh, ship out in the winter, uh, leaving their wives and children behind. And they would take schooner loads of whatever. Or they would blue water it, um, you know, to the Far East or whatever. Uh, And they'd return in the spring for spring planting. They would fish in the summer. They would do the harvest and then they'd ship out again. Mm. So they were subsistence patching together a main living, and people still do that today. Sure, sure. Tim, tell us a little bit about your historical research process. <laughs> well, I think it's similar to what Nancy described, and I, I think that one of the things I love most about the study of history is that you can study the history of anything mm. and mm. take the whole wide world and everything in it and, and choose a topic and pursue it. And what I've found in uh, name that topic is that it has the characteristic of a puzzle where you start with one piece and you start to look at other pieces that might be in the same box or adjacent boxes and you start to learn what goes together. And in the studying the history of Maine, often it's a name and you can uh, start to see what names go together and start to understand a community so that as you encounter more information and you really immerse yourself in that time, you start to recognize the relationships of people and documents to each other. Because anybody studying the history of Maine is going to cross many lines of organizations and collecting Mm -hmm. organizations from library to national archives to past copies of the Ellsworth American, uh, to special collections, and uh, you can get very far learning, uh, studying the census records and Ancestry.com for genealogical records. You can get very far on those fragments, and every once in a while, a big trove (laughs) of information and context will fall in, like uh, we recently received uh, a collection of letters from uh, James M. Parker, a young soldier, to his sister, three years his junior. And uh, we have access to another collection of letters between a man and a wife. He was serving on a ship in the Navy, and she she was at home raising three children. And those two collections of letters start to mention all the individuals we've discovered in those little fragmentary sources, starts to convey more of their personality, how they felt. And often the style of letters of that time are so, so candid, uh, you know, gossip. Like email today? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, or fortunately. <laughs> yeah, there, it was so. Uh, the the letters were so intimate, and you know that these letters were read and reread, and sometimes read to pieces uh, because they were the, the words were so valued over time. Mm. So you get to know a community. Uh, James McPherson is a really wonderful, uh, highly regarded uh, professor of. Of history and specialist in the Civil War. He, in the preface to one of his books, he recognized his friends the, the, among the thousands of letters that he read from Civil War soldiers. He thought he felt closer to them than many of his living friends today. <laughs> that you develop this intimate relationship with the right. people that you're studying. I'll just remind listeners that uh, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns. You may be listening to us um, via the web um, this morning because our transmitter is is undergoing some repairs, but we're glad to have you with us. Um, this is Talk of the Towns. Our guests in the studio as we talk about Maine as muse for historians are Nancy
Nancy Alexander of Islesboro, and uh, we're talking about some of her research on the hidden economy of coastal Maine women, 1850 to 1900, among other topics. And then Tim Tim Garrity is the executive director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society and his interest in, in Civil War and, and other other topics. Um, you may be able to reach us um, uh, by um, uh, emailing us at info uh, at weru.org, and uh, perhaps uh, you, you could put forward your question and we'll uh, get it to our, our guests this morning. I wanted to, to re- reflect on, on this notion of individuals and their relationships. I just had um, wonderful guests from the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. And um, Frank um, Rennie, um, who was a professor at the uh, uh, University of Highlands Islands, he married into um, a family, Agnes Rennie is, is his uh, wife. And uh, he says when she goes into the supermarket, she knows not only who people are, but how they're related going back generations. And for him, he only knows the headlines. He knows who that person is. And so she knows the island as a landscape of people. And he only knows, you know, a, a few of those people and not as much context. And you must be doing the same thing, trying to find out that landscape that's represented by people. Nancy, you're, you're chuckling. <laughs> I am. Um, I gave a presentation at the Islesboro Historical Society about these letters, and I became so involved with the young couple in it um, that uh, I could not read the last letter, and I knew I couldn't before I went in. And so I had asked my husband if he would read it for me because he has a stage presence, um, and he said, sure. But then we looked around the room, and I knew because I've become part of this island. I mean, I really live in Ellsworth, but I spend almost half a year on Islesboro every year. And I knew the people in the audience well enough to know that a woman who is a performer uh, was a direct descendant of the people I was writing about Mm. or speaking about. And so I asked her if she could read the last letter, which she did beautifully. Mm. And um, it really... It made for very unwittingly a very effective and interconnected uh, relationship with the island. It bringing pe- it made it so personal for everybody because she was one of their own, right? And they recognized that, and they recognized all their connections to these two people mm. um, in the letters. So mm. It worked out very nicely. Great. Can you share us why it was so hard for oh. you to read that letter? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> the, these over these thirty letters, there are twenty s- twenty five from Maria to her boyfriend Ambrose. There are four from Ambrose Ambrose to Maria. So he had saved her letters, and then there was one telling of his death, from uh, telling not of his death, telling him of Maria's death oh. from um, her sister. And um, I just can't read that one. Mm, mm. <laughs> it's just too hard. Right. Uh, interestingly, I was able to follow up on his later life, the life of their child. Um, and it's, so it's been a wonderful involvement. And um, I need to write this as a book because uh, I need to get rid of this family. They are not mine. <laughs> <laughs> Tim, do you ever get um, as as attached to a family or an individual? Um, what's it like for you? Well, their presence is still very powerful. Mm. I uh, you can. I think that um, Mount Desert Island is famously a, a beautiful place with a dramatic landscape, but slowly learning its history adds another dimension to it. So that you can look into the landscape a little more a, a little more deeply and understand uh, the meaning behind some of the some of these places so that I find if um, I'm passing a, a graveyard for instance uh, you see the uh, graves that are often decorated with flags a memorial day and often they have bronze stars and those bronze stars will say 
uh, GAR Post 1805, that's Grand Army of the Republic, the veterans organization that followed the Civil War. Post 105 was the James M. Parker post, a fellow that I'm writing about. And you can see those and realize that um, of the war dead, most of them died in the spring of 1864 during that what we would today call a surge as we had in <laughs> Afghanistan and Iraq same thing in the Civil War in the spring of 64 and you can realize too that um, at one point over 300 island men were members of the Grand Army of the Republic post and they slowly grew old and died and many of much of our history following the, those years still involves those men they were involved in the town the, the Civil War for many of them was the central, most dramatic time of their lives, and they spoke it a, uh, out of it. But they also treated the, the, their comrades who died in the war with great reverence. Every spring they would uh, decorate the graves of every one of them uh, with flowers. And eventually those 300 men dwindled to the newspaper, started to tr keep track of how many were left in the 1920s, uh, six remaining, mm -hmm. four remaining, until finally in 1937, the 90-year-old uh, Dennis J. Haley turned over the post flags and records to the comparatively young men of the American Legion, the ones that had survived the First World War, at recognizing that he was he was the last, so that the effect of this conflict and the engagement of these men, I I still see them as 19-year-olds. They're younger than my kids, and I I th think of them in that time. I, I I guess it just adds a d dimension of appreciation for the the life we have here and what went before. It, it adds a, additional dimensions to the landscape. And I, I think that being appreciative is a big part of the quality of life in Maine, appreciating the good things we have, the many qualities that you know, so many of, of your listeners uh, count on here. And, and its history, I think, is dramatic and, and important as the beautiful landscape. Mm. Each of you are looking at um, areas, um, Nancy, you, Islesboro, not your native place, um, Tim, um, Matt Desert Island is not your native place. Do you bring a kind of curiosity and objectivity to your search that is useful, do you think, Nancy? I do. Uh, I do. I was introduced to the idea of the stories of Islesboro by a 90-year-old woman who took me for a walk one day and started describing the idyllic childhood that she had. Um, that, and it is truly how she saw it. What she was not reflecting on at all was her mother's life. Mm. Her father had been a sea captain, so he was away frequently. Her mother took care of the seven children and um, held things together. And he was going for extensive trips. He was going to South America. Um, so it would be months and months and months and sometimes years. He would come home with a gift for her, something for whatever children there were, meet the new child, put another bun in the oven, and sail away. <laughs> 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 and this happened seven times. Um, so uh, Maddie and her brothers and sisters took a lot of responsibility around the house, but she had uh, no question, she never questioned um, the kind of life her mother was leading, trying to keep the children clean, trying mm. to make them beautiful clothing, teaching them to make their proper clothing, keeping the house appropriately, making sure the spring was healthy, dealing with the firewood, getting in the barrel of flour or the two or three for the year, taking care. Sometimes her husband would bring home live things as presents to the children. Great. You know, the idea was lovely but you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, so her life was very difficult. And um, Maddie's view of things was always so rosy and so loving that I, that's one of the other things that pushed me into following up these letters that I found, mm. was to find out really how hard was this. Mm. And it was hard. Right. It was right. hard living. Right. Tim, how would you respond to that question of both curiosity and, and objectivity? Well, I, I think it um, 
if you come into a community new, uh, you really have to treat your sources and the people around you with a great deal of respect and humility because there's no question in your own mind that you don't know anything. And uh, it allows you to hear fresh and never get overconfident that you've really got the story. So I, I, I think it may be like uh, people who are in a profession and there are interns or students that you work with. Often the students ask really terrific questions because they tend to be very, uh, they often are very fundamental, simple, straightforward, unguarded. Innocent. And, innocent yeah, they're in innocent questions. Sometimes right. those are the questions that need to be asked because we forget to, if we've been immersed in something, we forget those are questions at all. Mm. I, I think that by studying this history, it's a way of uh, paying respect to the people of today's community and uncovering stories that deserve to be told to a wider audience so that uh, those uh, qualities of life that we have around us today can be appreciated better. And um, I think it also, you know, sometimes we make mistakes, you know, sometimes we make the mistakes because we don't under understand. We uh, had a wonderful experience this summer at the Society. We, we brought up a historical boat, the Lewis H. Story, uh, the hardest working boat of the 18th century, uh, the, as common then as you would see a lobster boat today. And we had a reenactment of the first landing of Abraham Soames, his wife Hannah, and their four daughters, one a babe in arms, they also brought two cows on this little boat, and everybody could not imagine how that happened. And in even choosing the cast to play those parts, we realized as we were well down the road that these people we're talking about uh, are the ancestors of people that are around us today, and those people around us today really have a sense of ownership over their own people, and they don't want just anybody coming in. They, they want that... Johnny Depp wouldn't, wouldn't work in that role. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I guess Daniel Day Lewis did okay as Abraham Lincoln, but if you're talking about Abraham Soames, there's a certain amount of respect that's entailed to uh, who you, how you treat that subject. It's mm. not a mm. subject that is completely objective or devoid of present-day human emotions around it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I think that we're, it, it keeps us in a mode of continually learning and never mm -hmm. get, getting overconfident. Well, my next question um, had to do with uh, how you engage people in history. And it's obvious from each of you that all they would have to do, people would have to do is have a conversation with you. Um, but you, um, Tim, you talked about reenactment as a, as a way. Um, each of you are writing in, in history journals. What are, what are the other ways in which you think we should be engaging people, especially perhaps students? Um, you know, some people think of history as a memorization of facts. You're not looking at it that way. Um, how how do we take your excitement and then make um, the new generation of historians? Nancy? I found that introducing students to primary sources mm. uh, intrigues them. And um, I had a brief stint at COA um, and took uh, students to the Penobscot Marine Museum behind the curtain. <laughs> Right, uh, And the museum people were delighted to show how things are organized, what kinds of materials they had, and then open them up to the students. Did the same thing at Woodlawn uh, in Ellsworth. Uh, the papers of uh, John Black at Woodlawn have never really been plumbed, and it's just an, an extraordinary amount of history is sitting in closets at Woodlawn. Um, so... When I'm stopped going to the island, I know where I'm headed. Uh, but the students were totally intrigued by the idea of using primary resources. And to be actually able to hold the original in their hand, that had an enormous power of uh, connection um, for them. So that was a fun way to introduce yeah. somebody and, to history. And in engagement um, in the past, whether it was the um, um, the soldiers involved in different veterans organizations or 
historical societies, that was another way to keep people kind of engaged in, in their history. Tim, you're leading a historical society. Um, what are the ways in which you're trying to engage um, the people who might um, be interested in supporting your, your group? Well, I mentioned that uh, gravestone that first attracted me uh, to this topic, uh, the cavalryman whose gravestone said that he'd fell at the Battle of mm. the Wilderness in May 1864 and turned out that there was more to the story. I uh, studied this subject very thoroughly for months, and a re- request to the Maine State Archives uh, for his photograph, I didn't expect would come of it, but they had his picture. Mm. And uh, to s- after studying this topic and seeing that image for the first time, was a very powerful emotional connection that here is John Gilly. Mm. And you just study his face closely. And I and think... That's, and that's after doing your research. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a wholly different thing if you'd started with the picture. Yeah, to, to find what's been lost, lost to you anyway. And uh, if we can recreate that powerful experience, I think that will uh, connect people to the history of, of Maine. And there's lots of ways we can do that. And I, we try to reach out to many different audiences. We have third graders come to our 1892 schoolhouse and a reenactor play the part of the school marm to create a day in the life of a third grader in 1892. <laughs> we have a very active presence on social media in Facebook. And you use the term engagement, and that really allows us to measure what connects with people. Some things we put up there, only 100 people will look at. Some things we put up will engage 3,000 people. So you really get a, uh, a, a kind of a, a very good sense of what does connect with people. And people, I think, connect with a history that touches them. That's part of their own experience. I think that uh, we often think of the past as something that happened over a hundred years ago. But now there are elements of the past that are seem pretty current, like uh, where were you on September 11th? Or if we put up images of uh, the pictures from the 1970s or 80s, those are starting to enter the historical period and are something that we should be studying as historians. We're artifacts in ourselves. Yeah, we're yeah. This we're, group of people around the microphone. Right. But it's a, <laughs> so we're trying to reach out to people uh, in lots of different ways. We've, we've got a uh, center for historical research and education at the Sound Schoolhouse on Route 198 in Mount Desert, where you can do genealogic research. We have 35,000 items in our archives. We're open year-round. We have a very extensive presence on the web uh, at mdihistory.org, where people can look up genealogical information, see uh, deeds from their property. They can look at uh, a newspaper archive, a searchable uh, trove of the Bar Harbor Times and all its predecessor newspapers from 1881 to 1969. Uh, And we're trying to, we also find we can reach out by collaborating with other organizations. That newspaper archive came about because of the collaboration of 17 island collecting organizations united as Friends of Island History. They all contributed towards the digitization of that archive. Mm. And if we uh, engage the community through their active involvement uh, and work with other island organizations, recognizing that to do good history, you have to cross organizational lines. Mm. I think uh, it's trying to connect, especially our target is the, the younger generation, to get uh, people engaged at a younger age so that they will carry on this work in the future. Mm. Nancy, who are some of your favorite historians? Who, who did you, who besides um, the story of Nancy Hanks, who were you inspired by and, and who are you now inspired by? Uh, I have no recollection before I started um, the master's degree of any particular okay. historians yeah. that I was particularly intrigued with, 
But, of course, David McCullough mm. is just wonderful. And now that he's a main resident, that's even better. <laughs> we can sort of claim him or right. sit in his reflected glory mm. of some kind. Um, Alan Taylor did a superb job on his um, Liberty Men and Great Proprietors, which explains um, who settled um, the Mid-Coast region and why mm. and how and the conflicts that were there. And that included Islesboro. Um, so that was very good. Um, gosh, um, Joseph Conforti down at University of Southern Maine wrote a great book, Artist Cameron on women's rights, did a great job. Um, Dick Judd is my hero um, and a former professor and on my Ph.D. committee. Um, he is the go-to guy, mm. uh, as far as I'm concerned, mm -hmm. for Maine history. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot of really good work being done in the state. Um, I think that uh, the Maine Memory Network is a wonderful asset. You want to describe that just to, for our listeners? Uh, the Maine Historical Society in Portland, located in Longfellow's home on Congress Street, uh, has a superb library. But what they've done is they've created a collection, invited historical societies all over the state to um, contribute to uh, contribute their images to a statewide collection that's found on the web mm. so that uh, if I want to see what wooden boardwalks in Brooklyn, Maine looked like, um, I can find them perhaps mm. if, the, if they, if, if Brooklyn is, right. yeah, right. and um, it is really extraordinary. Mm. And, and then you, you go to, if you need to use that image or wish to use that image, uh, you can go through the main memory network to get rights to using the image, or it will tell you how to go directly. Mm. Um, to use image. Brooklyn Historical Society or some such. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tim, what are your kind of go-to authors? Um, who, who have you been inspired by? Well, I would use many of the same names that Nancy just mentioned. I find myself really excited by the work of young Maine historians. I'll, I'll mention the Chronicos blog. Uh, mm. Any of your listeners could uh, Google Chronicos, K-H-R-O-N-I-K-O-S, or just you Maine history blog. And you'll find that some of the uh, graduate students now are, have created this on their own. Paul, uh, Rachel Snell is the editor. She's a grad student at UMaine. And really creative, interesting work, a, a display of historical curiosity and imagination points to what kind of topics they're exploring, how they're interpreting it. It's such a... Uh, fresh and compelling look at history. It's not dusty and tired. It's, mm. it's really very, very much alive. And you can read, see that energy and enthusiasm in their work. And I, I would recommend that to anyone, is to connect with the history department at the University of Maine if you're interested in Maine history and mm. see what, uh, what new work is being done. Great. I've asked each of you to bring a second piece maybe um, to, to share, and we're almost at the end of the hour, so um, if you wouldn't mind, um, Nancy, are you, you uh, ready to share something but perhaps that you're working on? Well, I, I would like to share this. This is um, coming from, I'm, I am currently putting writing a book about the 30 letters that I found, mm. and um, this is sort of the opening salvo. Great. Um, I was very lonesome after you left me that Sunday, and I spied the vessel as long as I could see you on board. For thousands of years, women have stood at the water's edge watching the departure of their lovers, their husbands, and their sons, just as 17-year-old Maria Philbrook did, her gaze following the receding sailing vessel carrying her lover away to sea. This particular lover was leaving Gilkey's Harbor and 700-acre island, located in the town of Islesboro, which is part of Penobscot Bay in Maine. The year was 1855, and 20-year-old Ambrose Philbrook, a distant cousin of Maria's, was headed south aboard a sailing vessel, probably a schooner, serving as part of the crew. Ambrose expected to be gone for home, from home for about three months. This separation was their first since they had begun walking out together. However, as romantic as Maria's quote and the context sounds, her opening sentiment in her letter to Ambrose was quite different. 
and this letter was mailed from Camden to New York City, care of George L. Hatch at 22 South Street in New York, and he was the shipping agent. Islesboro, September 23, 1855. My dear Ambrose, I read your mother's letter last night in which you say you wrote to me from Flushing, but as yet I have not received a word from you since you left home, and you may believe I was very much disappointed when I went to the office last Friday not to find anything there for me. (laughs) (laughs) From Maria's opening sentence in this letter collection, we can immediately sense that this young woman was no shrinking violet nor a Victorian creature of cultivated delicacy but a relatively mature young woman with a healthy sense of herself and how she thought the world ought to work. Mm, great, great, great images, both of that receding ship and of her peak being saying, oh, I didn't get my letter. That's great. Uh, Tim, have you got something that you're working on? I do. I'm working on a piece that will uh, appear in the main history, the uh, academic Journal of the Maine Historical Society, and in this, it's a chapter on dissidents or people who oppose, were opposed to the Civil War, and uh, these are some of the concluding lines. We, we often think of the uh, Maine as a place where the war was vigorously supported, and for a little more than half the population, that was true, though everyone was worn and tired of it by the time it was over. But there was also a minority that was vigorously opposed to the war. They were commonly called Copperheads, Mm, uh, an appellation given to them by the editor of a Cincinnati newspaper who likened them to the snakes of Genesis. But they took on that name with pride eventually, and they wore on their lapel the Indian head penny because it contained on its obverse, a reverse side, the uh, Lady Liberty, and they felt that they were defending the Constitution. That's how they interpreted their work. So these are some of the final lines. When the war finally came to an end, victory for the Union caused was perceived not only as a triumph of military forces over the Confederacy, but also as, as a victory over the war's opponents at home. Throughout Maine, much of the elation of victory was expressed through acts of revenge and humiliation directed at Copperheads. The fact that Copperheads were still around at the war's end is an indication of their obstinance. Opponents of the war had increased their resolve as the war went on, as the casualties mounted, and as the draft threatened to draw into the fight men who wanted no part of it. If it is true, as tradition remembers, that the population of Maine was supportive of the war, it is also true, as tradition has mostly forgotten, that a significant minority was implacably opposed. Many of Maine's soldiers, perhaps most of them, enlisted not only out of patriotism, but with the knowledge that if they did not go voluntarily, they would almost certainly be conscripted and lose all chance at a volunteer's bounty. While 44 of every 1,000 Maine soldiers were killed in action or died of wounds, an equal proportion deserted. Some men whose employment took them to sea stayed far from the reach of the authorities until they were certain they were clear of the draft. Others, unlucky enough to be drafted, skedaddled before they were mustered or feigned illness or intentionally maimed themselves to obtain a medical deferment. Others deserted at the first opportunity, lighting out for Maine's boundless north woods or Canada, many never to return. Indeed, Mount Desert's population fell by 6% between the censuses of 1860 and 1870, a reduction that could not have been caused by war mortality alone. It's probable that some of the population loss was caused by the exodus of men who fled the draft and never came back. Mm. Great pieces. Um, and and um, again, that notion of history as, as teacher, um, each of you are, are kind of representing that, that we need to pay attention to what was past. What are you working on next? What's, what, what excites you as, you as you go forward? Maybe a, a, a 30 seconds answer. What, what are you working on next, Nancy? I'm going to continue working on this book of letters and mm. get that 
done, and then I'll try to make my PhD generally readable. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I'm, I, I think your telling of the story helps that. Tim, what are you going to be working We're on? We're working on our next issue of Chewbacca, our annual magazine. The general theme is titled Against the Current Outliers and Controversies. We'll have chapters on dissent in the Civil War, on the Ku Klux Klan that had a brief rising in the 1920s, a chapter called Difficult Women, uh, the, 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 the Gay and Lesbian History. We're exploring a wide range of topics, and that'll be our winter's work for Great. the coming season. Great. Well, thanks to both of you for being with us this morning. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland Music recording. Thanks again to our guests, Tim Garrity, Executive Director of the Mount Desert Island Historical Society, and Nancy Alexander, historian. Um, her doctoral thesis is Keeping House, Hidden Economy of Maine Coastal Women, 1850 to 1900. We didn't have any listeners um, calling in this morning because we're on the web instead of broadcasting over the airways. Um, thanks to Underwriters, though, and thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from Rockland Community Sailing at The Apprentice Shop offering adult and youth sailing lessons now through mid-October. Courses include basic sailing, navigation, learning to race, and parent-child-family classes, all taught on 15- to 25-foot sailboats in Rockland Harbor, 594-1800 or apprenticeshop.org. Each WERU member is part of a family that donates funds, time, and